Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to be with John Kohlhoff. John, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. And for those of you who may not know John, he's the Senior Vice President of Policy and Supervision at NASCIS, the National Association of State Chartered Credit Union Supervisors. Before that, he was the Commissioner of the Credit Union Department for the state of Texas. And before that, He had a few different roles, but his last role in Michigan was as director of the Office of Credit Unions for the Department of Insurance Financial Services. I wrote that down, but I couldn't read my own writing. A long name, for sure. I knew it was GIFs, you know, but I couldn't remember what the S was. And John, that's where we first met way back when I was a regional director out of Albany. And we had a lot of good interactions there with NCUA and in both of our former roles, you with the state and me with NCUA. And we would always see each other occasionally at meetings that we would have relative to that. And then at the NASCIS meetings, of course, back in the day. So I'm excited to get a chance to chat with you here today. I am too. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I think it's a great way to get information out. I really do appreciate it. I listen to it all the time. The dialogue you're having, trying to be forward thinking about what's going on in the industry, I think is awesome. That's great, John. I appreciate you listening and I appreciate you to have the opportunity for me to kind of pick your brain to hear what's going on state charter wise or looking to the future on what's going on in credit unions. So we were chatting a little bit pregame and we were talking a little bit about the dual charter resource initiative that I, I think I saw it announced probably in a couple of different places. I think I saw it on LinkedIn and probably at CU Today Info or, or CU Collaborator, one of those emails that come up. But So what's going on with the Dual Charter Resource Initiative that NASCIS just recently announced? Sure. Well, the Dual Charter Resource Initiative is a fund that NASCIS started a few years ago. We're just really getting into utilizing those funds. We've had some contributors and the purpose of the Dual Charter Resource Initiative, I'm going to just say DCRI to make it easier from now on, is to really look forward and try to make sure that we maintain a strong dual charter. I mean, that's really what I think makes the United States system work so well. Yes, we have the federal regulators and yes, we have state regulators, but we have always different options, different experimentation going on, different viewpoints looking at institutions, two sets of eyes on a lot of the stuff, particularly when there's a state charter involved, I think is very important. So the dual charter resource initiative is really meant to ensure that we maintain both strong state charters and strong federal charters So as we move forward, we continue to evolve the credit union industry in total and not just leave one or the other uh, charter behind. And along those lines, you know, one of the differentiating points is field membership. So the 47 states, 48 states that have state charters, I think South Dakota and maybe another one or two don't have state charters. The field membership is one of the areas, one of the broad areas that states have a different approach. And in some instances, it may be beneficial for credit unions to have the state charter. In other places, there might be a state law that's been sitting there on the books for whatever reason and hasn't been changed. Any thoughts relative? I think when you were at Michigan, there was a big change to broaden the opportunities for credit unions and Michigan state charters. Any thoughts specifically on field of membership? Yes, Michigan was kind of really on the leading edge of that years ago. I mean, we 
did our first change, a big change in 2003, was when it became implemented. And it really did evolve what we thought of as the field of membership in Michigan. It it removed ability to serve. It removed some of the other non-competitive parts of some of the credit union acts that are out there. We're seeing a huge push for states that are now going through looking at modernization, particularly related to field of membership. And again, it's all related to the dual charter. We're seeing the federal credit unions with the NCUA board moving forward with trying to get more robust fields of membership for their charter institutions. And that's progressed. Now states are doing this a lot of the same thing. Many states have been doing it for years, and I would say ahead of the curve. Michigan is one of them, but many others are looking at it right now. I'm doing a lot of work for states right now, talking to them about Waterfield membership options for their recodifications that they're looking at. Brian and I have worked with, just since I've been here since August, probably three states directly. I've even testified in front of the North Carolina legislature regarding a field of membership adjustment that they were planning on making. Still very controversial, you can imagine, within the states. But when you look at the grand totality of it all, when you see what the federals can do, and you've got a state that's fallen behind in their field of membership, you really do understand that that's the beauty of this is if if those credit unions can't get it from their state side, then they're going to get it from their federal side. If they can't get it from their federal side, they're going to get it from their state side, as long as it's safe and sound, obviously. We're not going to be approving things that are way above and outlandish ideas. But unless it's a safety and soundness issue, we shouldn't be involved as regulators. And that's a kind of a classic example of the value of the dual chartering system is as states looked at their rules and broadened them, a new NCUA board comes in and they have everybody comes in and says, hey, we need to fix this, this and this. And field of membership is always something people kind of push on. And of course, there have been lawsuits in the past that NCUA, the American Bankers Association, will push back on the opposite side. But the fact that the states are able to make some changes, keeps NCUA aware of the fact that maybe they need to be taking a look at it. And when I was still there, there were some changes along the low-income designations. So then the federal charter was able to pick up a little bit of value with Mm -hmm. uh, some new, staying within the Federal Credit Union Act, but creating some regulations that provided some flexibility, which then put the states look at it and say, okay, well, now that NCUA has done that, maybe we can learn from that. And that's kind of the uh, just a classic example of how both systems operate separately, but with a little bit of harmony, and we can always learn from the other side. Yeah, I really think it speaks, and it's not really just the dual charter itself, because as you know, I was a bank examiner before I was a credit union examiner in a previous life. But I also think that we in the credit union industry in the United States still have the ability, and we still maintain a non-homogeneous environment for our credit unions. And the banking side really doesn't matter if you're a Wisconsin federal charter or a California state charter. Really, it's all homogenized to such a level because of the insurance. With our work with NCUA, with the state charters as they are, we still have quite a bit of experimentation that could happen at the state level and sometimes at the federal level that allows that. NCUA has still continued to maintain that there are differences between the state and federal charter. Some things federal charters can't do, state charters can't do, and that's okay. There's certain things that they need to do for insurance, and that's all right. But we still have this, and I really rue the day if we become not just kind of a fallow dual charter where where everything is static, because that doesn't make any sense. We're not evolving. But I also would be concerned if we get to the point where every credit union in every state is going to look pretty much identical because they're limited, whether it's for insurance reasons or for charter reasons, to the same products, same services, the same way of doing things. That is not what we want, and it doesn't create a very evolving industry. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. So state laws, you were a bank examiner, you were a state examiner for credit unions. I was a credit union examiner for NCUA. 
NCUA has their federal exam program, and then they have the insurance review process for state charters. And before I left, there was the initiative, I can't remember what they called it, but they were kind of evaluating how to evolve that insurance review process. And there was a pilot program where some states participated, where they alternated. And for the listeners, NCUA's current policy is if you're over a billion dollars in assets, NCUA will participate or have their own insurance review, participate with the state or have their own But they went to a pilot program where they did alternating, where NCUA just went solo, and then the next year the state would go in some states. And then there's some states where it's a joint all the time, and perhaps the state will issue the report and NCUA will have input into the report. Any thoughts relative to how that process has evolved or any thoughts relative to that joint exam process? Yeah, well, I can't tell you that the pilot, obviously, this is an NCUA pilot program that several states were involved in. And there was really three types of joint exam programs that you could get involved with. You could get involved, as you say, as alternating where NCUA and then the state would do an exam, every other exam, and they would alternate who does the exam, who writes the report. The other type was both state and federal examiners would be on site but you would alternate who was the author of the exam. This time it would be NCUA, next time it would be the state. The way it works typically now in most states is the state is really the author of the exam. Of course, NCUA is perfectly capable and issue their own report if they wish to, but many times they're just issuing it with the states for even though we work together, but you're splitting the workforce on it. And then the third type of program is really you both the state and NCUA are on site and they both sign the exam. It's jointly issued by both parties that'll have the NCUA logo and the state logo on it, signed by the examiners, et cetera. So we really experimented with that. Some states chose different versions of that. We are actually still rounding up, NCUA is still rounding up the information, the data collection from the surveys on the credit unions and the, the, the examiners on how they thought that went. I think you're going to have some states, this is just my personal opinion, obviously, I'm just speaking from what I've kind of heard in the background without anybody making any official claim yet. I think some states are already doing this type of activity, which really mirrors what's done on the federal side, on the banking side. Over there, those are the types of exams you have on the banking examination side. But I think you're going to still have some states that are going to say, no, we're going to continue to do it the way we're doing it, even if they participated in the pilot, that they want to continue to author the reports. Again, NCUA can issue a letter. They can issue another report if they wish, if they don't agree with the contents of the report, if they're on site with the state. But I think you're going to have a mix of that. And that's good because one thing we want to make sure, particularly when we're looking at a potential for an economic challenges, I'll just say it that way, with possibilities of recession and just regular impact on credit unions from the interest rate risk environment. You want to make sure that you have enough resources in total to cover this. And that's another beauty of the dual charter is that we have state regulators that are out doing things and federal regulators that are doing things in that state potentially. But when they have to go do something somewhere else and CUA has to go because there's a really bad thing happening somewhere else. So they have to pull resources from, let's say, I'm just going to say Tennessee, I'm just going to make up a state to go to somewhere else because there's a big issue going on there. They can pull those resources and still have a strong regulator who's got enough capability to to deal with it. 
Not to say that it always works that way where we're the states are helping NCUA out because there are times when a state, for various reasons, has limited resources. Maybe it's a mass retirement of their folks. There's a whole gamut of reasons it could be. Maybe it's a program that has lost funding from the state government. NCUA then has stepped in and made sure that those institutions within that state have had strong examinations and continue to maintain an industry that the membership can be confident in, because that's really what our job is. Sure, sure. When that reminds me of 08, 09 and the Great Recession at the time I was regional director in Albany and we picked up Nevada. So Nevada was covered by, and that was the issue of the sand states, right? Florida, Mm -hmm. uh, Nevada, California, Arizona had more challenges than the rest of the country. So their resources NCUA had on the West Coast was not enough to deal with the concentration of code threes, fours, and fives that hit the country. So we picked up Nevada. We picked up a couple of state chartered credit unions in California that we supervised, you know, out of the East Coast. So having NCUA kind of can have an army where they can assist with resources. And the flip side of that is the states have some expertise in some areas that NCUA might not. And the split value life, the the Boley or Cuoli, whatever, I remember having dialogues. The states were educating NCUA relative to that so that NCUA could figure out how they were going to understand how that worked on balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. On the state side, our examiners or our agencies have been doing banks for over 100 years. They've been doing insurance companies for the entire lifetime of that industry. Um, Securities, potentially, depending on the agency, there's different areas that are covered. So obviously, in our agencies in the States, there's a lot of different expertise that NCUA in particular areas. I can remember when derivatives first became on the NCUA's radar screen. There was a lot of legitimate concern and worry about what impact that could have to the insurance fund, and rightly so. So a bunch of us sat down and walked through on the state side what we look at it insurance companies and banks. And we actually had some credit unions that were at that time doing some derivative work. And it hadn't really caused any major problem. In fact, it was a mitigator for risk. That's a great point. So derivatives, I've got several clients that have that authority and have utilized it in this current environment that we've got going on right now. I've done a lot of podcasts on liquidity with one of my team members, Todd Miller. But one of the things I say a lot is liquidity doesn't matter until it matters. And then it's Mm -hmm. the only thing matters. And I'm seeing that brought up a lot right now. I was talking to a credit union yesterday whose exam started the day after Silicon Valley Bank failed. You know, So Friday, the state of California took them over. By Monday, they were gone. And that credit union had an exam starting that Monday. And there was a full court press, right? And they had a couple things that they needed to deal with. And a lot of credit unions, everybody, the whole financial industry is kind of learning about uninsured deposits. It's not new, but you're looking at it in a new light because of how that all came about and the speed of light that you talk about looking forward, social media played a big role in that where people were, they're able to move the money quicker. They were able to become aware that there was something that might make them want to move their money. That's something I know the FDIC, OCC, the Federal Reserve is taking a look at, at what that might mean for insurance limits, what it might mean for regulations, et cetera, et cetera. I, I imagine at NASCIS, you had a lot of phone calls and maybe different committee meetings and different things to just, hey, what does this mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for credit unions? Any thoughts on that whole interesting situation? I mean, like you implied there or stated explicitly, I guess, there are, were some unprecedented aspects of it. The impact of social media and the quickness of the loss of confidence from the community was unprecedented. The speed at which an ease at which with deposits could be withdrawn were unprecedented. And for that 
those institutions, their membership base, particularly related to what you see in credit unions being almost totally uninsured, was also unprecedented or really pushing it, I would say. However, you kind of go back to basics. And I don't know how far back, I don't remember when you started, Mark, but I was at the edge of the last liquidity crunch when I started. And of course, they were hounding us. And as an examiner, we learned the basics of gap review, you know, not generally accepted accounting principles, but gap as in short-term liabilities, long-term liabilities, those short-term assets, I'm sorry, and long-term assets and matching those up. Obviously, we've got into these systems with our interest rate risk modeling that are very complex. And we're doing this with CECL now, too. We're creating this very complex modeling that is supposed to give us a better guess at what our credit risk is or interest rate risk modeling that gives us a better guess what our liquidity thresholds are or what our interest rate risk threshold is. However, there's a lot of ways to build in what I would call bad assumptions into those models or assumptions that don't really reflect. And the easiest one to explain is when you talk about an allowance methodology and someone starts doing business loans, and you and I have had this discussion with credit union commercial lenders, they start doing business loans, and guess what? They don't have any losses historically. So for their allowance methodology before CECL, they would just say 0%. Like, okay, I think we need to figure out what do you think your losses are going to be? At least take a guess. It's not going to be zero. Same thing with this. I mean, I could actually hear that conversation after SVB with the examiner and with the interest rate risk modeling person saying, hey, our non-maturing deposits, and I might be getting a little too in the weeds for some of your listeners, our non-maturing deposits are not sensitive to market rate changes because they haven't changed in 20 years. Well, guess what else hasn't changed in 20 years? Rates haven't changed in 20 years. So I could see that being pushed. And well, we've got the data to back this up. And how does an examiner, even if they've got 10, 15 years, go up against modeling data that is supported by real data? Right. At the the litmus test, does this make sense? It's like, okay, wait a minute. 95% of your deposits are uninsured, and you're saying none of them are volatile? Right. You know, we used to call those volatile funds, by the way. Exactly. Now they're called non-core. Right, right, yeah. No, it's interesting times relative to that, and NCUA has their net economic value test, which provides some value, but it also is a little bit of a rough justice because it doesn't give credit unions credit for other things, and I've had a lot right. of conversations here on the podcast and with credit unions relative to that, but yeah, this but is I do think the SVB issue thing, though, I think it was a good wake-up call. For all regulators across the board, state and federal, to remind all of us of the importance and the basic way liquidity works. Like you said so appropriately, you don't care about liquidity until it's gone. And then you're really messing around trying to figure out how you're going to make the day's payroll. Go back to the it's a wonderful life with the two dollars that go in the safe. Right, right. You know, yeah. Hoping that they make more. That is really some of the discussions that take place. And it's usually not $2. It's usually how am I going to get covered in the hole that I've got from my correspondent account tonight? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's like all you can think of at that juncture. Once it becomes an issue, it becomes the one and only issue, it seems at times. So, hey, we touched a little bit on state laws and the difference that provides and creates some opportunities for state charters to have their own set of rules and different things like that. And in the joint exam process, that was always something that's an interpret. So you have these joint exams and or NCUA goes in separately and there's state laws. It's difficult for NCUA 
there's enough rules for NCUA examiners to have to understand relative to the federal rules. And then there's the state rules. Any thoughts relative to, I mean, I'm not even sure if there's a question here more than a statement, but the in a joint exam, there's state laws. That's something, when NCUA comes in, it's a safety and soundness reviews. And if there's regulations that tie to, that are federal, that are safety and soundness based, they'll be involved in that. And then if there are regulations, the state is the regulator and there are state regulators and the state We'll deal with that in the joint exam process. Any thoughts relative to how that process works or when it, any thoughts on it? Yeah, and we have this issue even on the state side when we're dealing with multi-state credit unions, you know, credit unions that are operating in various states. Because every state, as you know, with from your work with NCUA, every state has some weird financial services law or plethora of them actually depending but there's always something weird about insurance or something weird about selling gap products or all those types of things so there's always something strange so i think yes that's an issue for ncua ncua obviously looks at compliance as much as they can with state law because you want to check that box on the management side to make sure that they're doing what they need to do but i do think that one of our as just as an example we're working on the interstate activities agreement to kind of make that issue of interstate branching or interstate field of membership competitive disadvantages for state charters because if you're a federal credit union, you don't ask a state to put a branch in, you just build a branch. And you, of course, have to ask NCUA for field of membership, but field of membership is not restricted to state lines. If you're in an MSA or anything like that, a federal credit union may get, as an example, Las Cruces in New Mexico, as well as El Paso in Texas in one field of membership. So dealing with the interstate activities, when we sign these agreements, we're trying to make sure that states work together for several reasons to consolidate what's going on. Obviously, there's only one prudential regulator of that institution, but the whole state has an important role to fill, making sure that their laws are being complied with by whatever activities that institution is doing within their state too. So on the banking side, it's been going on for years, but you'll have regulators on the whole state who will be actually performing part of an exam with the home state, the chartering state, and that will basically, that home state will lease out those examiners to cover that so they can go in there and see that, okay, you're operating in Massachusetts, are you complying with Massachusetts law? And they might even do the related, like Massachusetts requires CRA. So they might even look at those types of things, because as you know, state law does apply to a state institution, even if it's foreign operating when there, they can't be preempted as what you normally will see with a federal institution operating in a foreign state. So I think right. it's a very big thing. Yes, we're working on that. Our interstate activities is actually right now being circulated throughout the country for our state regulators to sign it. We currently have 11, I think, states that have signed on to it to just basically raise their hand to say, hey, we know that we've got interstate activity. We know that we're going to be involved in it both sides of the transaction as a home state and a host state. And here's some of the basic rules of how we're going to operate in this. Again, it's got to be very basic and very centered on three things. One, how are you going to communicate? Who's the primary regulator? What's the function of the host state? Information sharing agreements in place is part of this. Trying to address all those things that are just necessary for the base level to make sure that those two states are talking about an institution when they need to be, because we don't want to see a case where a credit union from Michigan, I'll give them as an example, is operating in Texas and breaking a Texas law unknowingly, probably because they were chartered in Michigan and that law does not apply in Michigan. 
Right, right. No, that's a fantastic point. You talk about the states that are signing on relative to that, and there'll probably be more more that will get added to that as time goes on. And I'm guessing that that might be a topic. At I was looking, we were chatting beforehand. I looked at the NASCAS website, but in Nashville, you've got the 58th annual state system summit coming up in August. That might be a topic that's on the agenda there. But what's happening in August in Nashville related to state charters? Yeah. One, as usual, the state system summit is a great opportunity for both the regulators and the credit union industry, both trades and the credit unions, to be involved in these conversations about what's the future of the industry look like? What does the regulatory footprint have to look like to match up and make sure that it's not in the way of whatever's evolving in the industry? Those conversations, as always, are just instrumental. I think they're the Despite the great education that NASCAS brings to the event and the great forward-looking things that they do, that's really the primary thing for it. When I was a regulator, for me to be able to talk to not just the states, credit unions that I regulate, but also other states to get their unbiased and unblemished opinion of what I'm thinking on a certain topic. So my best friends are credit union folks, and you know, built even my charters that when I was a regulator would give me a blatant, unfiltered opinion. What were you thinking when you wrote this? Right. Sometimes, you know, institutions aren't that comfortable saying, hey, Mr. Koloff, you're full of crap, basically. Right. Right. So those discussions are the best. Obviously, we're going to be concentrating a lot with fintech, really in the guy's blockchain and how it can affect. So we've got Becky Reed from Lone Star Credit Union, who's, as you know, is Tremendously involved in fintech and blockchain and all those sorts of things, as well as Charles Weiss, the new director of financial technology and access, I think is the name of the office that he runs. To talk about those things, we got the next big idea that's always a big presentation at NetUSO, which is basically fintechs that are hitting the market now and are winning what they think their membership thinks is the best ideas for the future. Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about some of the regular stuff we talk about every year. What's going on, unfortunately, what's new in fraud? What are we seeing in those areas and how can credit unions protect themselves and how can regulators make sure that they're helping to assist in that process? So a very busy schedule. It's August 27th through the 29th, I believe. And we will be talking about a lot of things, I'm sure. And that's state regulators. As you said, you've got Charles Weiss from NCUA, I'm imagining there might be some NCUA staff and or board members that come in for different. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot all about Chair Harper. Well, there's always at least one board member. I know Chair Harper's already committed to give a presentation. I don't know if that'd be about the time that Hood may have been, depending on what's going on. Hood might not be there, but if they're available, my guess is that one or two of the other board members will be there, even if they're not speaking, because usually they're attending all of them. But yes, I forgot all about Chair Harper. Yes. Yeah. And then the credit unions, that wisdom of crowds is kind of when you talk about hearing from the real world, there's a book called The Wisdom of Crowds that refer to a lot, but it kind of helps the regulators see their blind spots, right? So that's an opportunity for credit unions to participate. And if someone's interested in that, they can find out how to participate, I'm assuming, it on your website. Is that yeah, on our website. It's one of our featured events. There's a link there that will outline. It's in Nashville this year at the Omni. We'll outline how to register to get your room. Everything else that you need to know is there or anywhere at nascus.org. It's hard to let go of the .gov. Hard to let go of the .gov, yeah. Once you say .gov, it's hard to stop. And then I know you do a lot of cybersecurity training at other events and different things. And is there any other events coming up that credit unions should be looking for that you want to reference here? 
Well, we have, I think right now, I think actually is when the, if I remember right, when the cyber event is going on. That's the big one that I'm getting ready for. I know we have the cyber conference in, that's actually going on right now. That's what I thought. Really, that's our big one that would be our S3 or state system summit is the big one I'm working on now. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So if someone wants that cyber one, it'd be June of 2024. They should be looking for most likely. Correct. Okay, yeah. cool. Of course, we always have our marijuana one too. That one I think is coming up. I don't know when, but there's always a cannabis system summit. I think that's coming up at the end of June for those that are interested in And I think it's in a Chicago, I believe, June 26th and 28th. Yeah, we always have, obviously, too, our big Bank Secrecy Act AML with CUNA as well. That's a well-attended event. That's the one down in Florida? It moves all over the country. Yeah, it? All over. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Very good. Well, John, is there any questions that I should have asked you here today that I didn't? I mean, I think you asked a lot of great questions. Obviously, you can tell from the dialogue that I've had that my big passion for the credit union industry being as a regulator and now switching kind of seats and being a person representing regulators on the national front with Brian is the good work that the credit unions do. I would definitely remind all the credit union executives and all the board members and all the regulators that they are a piece of this puzzle that works together to ensure safe, sound, and most importantly, viable for the future financial services to their members and the passion to make sure that we continue to make sure that evolves. Because a lot of our discussion today was on the fintech, the blockchain, what's the future going to look like? And most prescient regulators and credit unions are thinking about what do we look like one year, three year, five years down the road, even 10 years down the road, and matching those up again so that we make sure that wherever we're going, the regulations are not in the way. They shouldn't be a hindrance to getting there unless there's a real reason for safety and soundness to be in the way. We shouldn't just be slowing down progress to slow down progress because as we all know, taxis with Uber and Lyft restaurants with having on-site seating with a DoorDash and Uber Eats. Everything now moves so fast, even with the technology of the banking world. We've seen that unprecedented response or unprecedented activities that took place that contributed to SVP and even somewhat to First Republic. So all those things that are going on, I think we really got to keep remembering that while we're still walking this section of the mile, that we got to keep our eyes in the future to see that there's anything in our way up there. And I think your program does that. I think it's a great way for us to talk about the real today things like liquidity right. that are basic, but we need to be reminded of every once in a while. And we've talked about the new things that are going to be taking place and gets us thinking about how that could impact the industry and our regulatory environment. It's a great summary, John. appreciate that. And I really appreciate you having time to share your thoughts with my listeners. Thanks so much. It was great. Thank you. Very good. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Trichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com.